How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How you doing there? It is Lent, John, as a very observant uh, member of the Catholic community, Woo, I suspect. Parkhead Tuesday. What are you giving up, my friend? I, I take up things in Lent. <laughs> what are you I taking don't up? Give You're up taking up anything. smoking again, are you? Yeah, I might do. Actually, in fact, I you know, I've been off smokes for... Eight months now? I know, I know. It is quite amazing. Yeah. A man who, uh, I never saw this fella without a smoke in his gob from the age of about 14. Career smoker. The age of about 14. You were a <laughs> committed, committed. And of course, my new thing is bird feeding. Have you noticed? I have noticed. You were out <laughs> in the garden. You're, you're what did he call it here? A Twitter? A Twitter. A Twitter. No, I was, I took pity on the birds during the winter, right? Right. Uh, the harsh winter. I was looking at the window and I was looking at these little blue tits and thrushes and sparrows and I'm not really good at birds but I yeah. decided uh, that I would feed the birds and now I what are you am feeding them though I now I go up to Costello's hardware store in Patrick Street in Dunleary and I buy bird seed right. you're not just leaving out a bag of crisps no, no. <laughs> bag of hula hoops <laughs> the love of hula hoop those birds and now I am uh, committed and Shan is amazed by my sudden attachment to the avian species good I'm going to have to take you out up the mountains to look at birds. To look at birds. We just look at the back garden. You start smoking out of a jar and we look at the birds in the back garden. Anyway, how are you, Sunshine? Are you well? I'm good. Actually, in terms of, of taking stuff up, because you know what? The old knee was giving me trouble over oh, the years. the old knee. So I have to get back into the gym. Oh, right. Okay. So, that's so Lent, 40 days, 40 nights, burning bushes, you, Moses, me, the whole lot. And pushing iron. Pushing iron. <laughs> oh, it what are you lifting? I don't know. My, my spirits, maybe. <laughs> so you're going to go to Neil, are you? Going to go back to Neil. So For I'm Lent. Go, yes, I'm going to go I'm back to... I'm going to feed the birds and you're going to... I am going to go back to Neil because he has this whole new thing going on. It's a six-week package for 177 quid for 12 group sessions. Because that is exactly what I need. The Ned is looking yeah, at me now. The Ned. the Ned, the Lenten Ned, the Christmas Ned yeah. is going to be banished. As a result, it's what's he at? Neil Bowman Training. Ie is it? That's it. Neil That's Bowman it. Training. Okay, and I'll see you down there. And uh, you, you, in my sweatpants. In your sweatpants, I will be progressing. I will be watching John's progress. It's like Rake's progress, like a Hogarth picture from the uh, from the seventeenth century. And we will be watching the Ned as it shrinks. As it shrinks. Anyway, let us let us let us talk about serious things, John. Let's talk about serious things. Martin Wolf, maybe the best economics commentator in the world. From the FT. From the FT has written this extraordinary book, and I think it's apt to talk about it today. It's called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. But I think on the anniversary of an invasion of Ukraine, which actually pits two ideological ideas against each other. Yeah. One is for all its faults, and Ukraine has many faults, it is a vibrant democratic country, evidenced most clearly by the fact that they actually elected a comedian. Right? That, yes, that yeah, shows yeah, yeah. you that shows you that this is yeah. a democracy, right? Against a dictator. A man who the Russian constitution 
said could only serve twice as president of the constitution. Mm. He broke that. He served as prime minister. He came back as a life president. Yeah. He has destroyed the country. He has destroyed the freedom of Russia. So there are two ideologies here. There's, for all its warts, the Ukrainian stroke European idea of liberalism and democracy and the Russian idea of Putinism. Yeah. And I don't even think it's a Russian idea. It's explicitly him. And I think we should mark this invasion, this clash of ideologies, with a discussion with Martin Wolf on this new book, because his book is about democratic capitalism, liberalism, the sort of liberal order that we have benefited from, yep. and yep. the crisis in it. Yeah. So let's go to London and talk to Martin. Great. Now, about 20 years ago, I used to present a TV show in Ireland called Agenda. And I sent an email to a character, a journalist, an economist, a thinker I'd been reading for quite some time to say, would you come over from London and come on this show? And Martin Wolf, too, actually my amazement, yeah, actually, I'm doing nothing this weekend. I'll go over to Ireland for the weekend and we have a chat. And that was the first time I met Martin Wolf. I've met him on many, many occasions. He's been at Kilconomics. I've done the FT. But more importantly, I have been a committed, not a casual, a committed reader, week in, week out in the Financial Times, of Martin Wolf. He is on the line. He has this new book, which I cannot wait to talk to him about, called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. We skirted around this a couple of times, maybe a few years ago when we chatted. It's obviously a labor of love. It's a life work. It's a wonderful read. It's a bit of a worrying read, actually, uh, in terms of citizenship. But he is on the line now. Martin, how are you? Good to see you. Well, I'm fine, and I'm looking forward to our discussion, and it's great to be with you again. Martin, this book, when you and I talked to Kilconomics a couple of years ago, I want to set the, set the scene. We were on stage. I threw a question to you. I was asking you about the way you thought about the world. And you started by saying, look, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my family to give you a little bit of a basis as to why I think liberal democracy, market capitalism, and the liberal order is worth protecting, preserving, and fighting for. So tell me a bit about that before we start. Okay, um, and it fits very well with the book because since I think you've read some of it, it's where I start. And sort of why did I write this book? And obviously, my perspective is a little different from many other people's. So my parents were both Europeans, continental Europeans. My father grew up in Austria, my mother in Holland, and they were both refugees from Hitler. Uh, my father came in to England in 1937, uh, so before the Anschluss between Germany and Austria. My mother came in May 1940 uh, with her immediate family as the German armies were pouring over the frontier. My family is Jewish, and those in their immediate family realized very well what this meant. Their wider families were very large. My father's in Poland, my mother's in Holland. They didn't believe what it meant. They they were not alert, and they were all killed. Uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 uh, aunts, uncles, and cousins of my parents were killed, at least. I, I don't know exactly the names and numbers of all of them. My parents didn't talk about it. Anyway, the core point is that was a, you know, that's what I came out of. My parents would never have met if it hadn't been for Hitler. They, no way. This is not to say there was anything good about this. So what I learned from their background is that civilization is very fragile. The, you know, in 1910, nobody could have imagined when my father was born what was going to happen to Europe and the collapse of civilized order into this level of barbarism and mass murder and destruction was inconceivable. Now, I don't want to say, I'll be very, very clear that what's happening now is the same. Of course it isn't, and thank God. We don't have anybody like that. But I've been seeing things in the last 10, 15 years, really starting with the financial crisis, even more with the events of 2016, um, echoes of this past, of irrationality, unreasoned hatred, forms of populism that have echoes, echoes. I say no more of fascism. And it frightens me. And that's what led me to write this book about, well, why has this happened? And what can we do about it? Well, I remember we chatted, I think, at the FT weekend, ah, four or five years ago. I said, how are you, Martin? He says, he said, I'm writing this big work. And it's, well, it's difficult. The book is a defense of 
democratic capitalism, the sort of thing that where we live in, the system that has actually benefited Ireland enormously. But I just want to take that story, the idea that, that the world, the liberal order, is fragile. You shouldn't accept that it can always be, or it will always be permanent. And let's start about this idea. The beginning of the book talks about this symbiotic relationship between capitalism or market capitalism and democracy. Let's start there and let's let's progress. Tell me about the symbiotic relationship and how one leads to the other and reinforces the other. So, yes, this is, I think, the most interesting part of the book to me and probably the most controversial. But uh, I enjoyed writing these chapters, these couple of chapters at the beginning most. So the point I make is both a historical and a theoretical one. The historical one is important. I believe one's thinking about human society must be rooted in what actually happened. You can't, or happens, you can't make purely theoretical comments. Indeed, I think that was the great mis mistake of utopian Marxism, to, to think of constructing societies on utopian lines a prioristically. So the point I make is 200 years ago, little over 200 years ago, basically there weren't any democracies. There were systems in which there were parliaments and a, a very small part of the population, basically rich men, uh, had a vote, not equally given. Aristocrats of various kinds were dominant figures, the very wealthy. And uh, that was even true with the founding fathers of America, so many of whom were slave owners and plantation owners. Now, uh, we came from there to universal suffrage uh, in our parliamentary systems about 100 years ago. So over a, over a period of 130 years uh, or so, we moved from one system of politics to another, completely different one. Why did that happen? That's the historical record. Well, the societies where this transition occurred were all market capitalist societies. Well, without exception, not all market capitalist societies made the transition at that time. I've been discussed the German exception, very important, but the ones that did were market capitalists. And I argue that happened for two reasons, quite different reasons, but they link. One is the market capitalist system is based on a core liberal idea, which is your position in society, in the economy, in this, is not determined by ascribed status. It's not determined by where you're, who you're born to, who your parents were, by your aristocratic position. You can get up and make a fortune and you become a major part of society. And that was already beginning to happen in uh, 18th century England. Think of, of Wotton, Bolton and the Rothschilds. They came from nowhere. And then they were major figures in society, wealthy, successful, respected. And in the process, of course, of doing what they did, and the many, many other businessmen and entrepreneurs, they started to make society richer than they'd never been before. That really began in the early 19th century in Britain. It was a very slow process. In the second half of the 19th century, it spread across large parts of the Western world, and the growth rate started to accelerate, and technological innovations became extraordinary because we had unleashed individual enterprise, and that was respected and admired. Change and the change brought about by free action was a was absolutely welcome. This is a profound transformation from most historic organized societies, which were locked down by uh, monarchs and aristocrats who wanted to keep everything always the same. Now, this was a revolutionary economic system, started to create a revolutionary economy. And in that economy, people started saying, well, if we live in this society where everybody is free and is entitled under the law to do the best for them, well, we also want a place in the political order. We want a voice in the political order. And there became big political pressures for this. In, in England, the Chartists were very famous. Nationalist movements began at the same time, very, very significantly related to this often with liberal ideas too. Italy is a very good example of that. And then crucially, there was the organization of the working class. I think that was an indispensable part of it. Trades unions also insisting on power. And meanwhile, 
intelligent business people, intelligent leaders started saying, to them, well, we need an educated labor force. And we have got much more sophisticated production. We're working in large factories. Everybody has to read things. So they, they, we went to universal education. These pressures all together made it increasingly difficult to prevent the suffrage from expanding. There were a succession of events in different countries, I can't go through them all, which ultimately led yeah. with the World War I, a big catalyst to universal suffrage democracy. So both in theory, in the way I've described these rather similar ideological roots in liberalism and in historical process, the movement to democracy clearly originated out of and was driven by this transforming economy, the market capitalist order. And this is actually completely opposite to what Marx himself thought would happen, but he was wrong. Well, he was wrong about he was wrong about many, many, many things. As I always Indeed. say to I say to this the sometimes the students at Trinity teach of us start with Marx, but just don't end there. But what I, what I want to talk to you, it's, it's very interesting you talk about suffrage. I've been recently reading about, I don't know if you read, about the bike craze in the 1890s and the mm -hmm. link between bicycles and, and, and the suffragette movement. Fascinating stuff, but it's all part of the same thing. It's the 1890s. Exactly. You've got, on the one hand, you've got colonialism, which is, which is a stain on Europe. And on the other hand, you've got this extraordinary urgency of changing the way the society works. So let, let, us, let us fast forward to the liberal order and why you think it's under threat. As an Irish person, I've always argued that one of the main reasons, maybe I think the main reason this society actually propelled itself forward in the last 40 years is we abandoned lots of dogma, religious dogma, moral dogma, sexual dogma, democratic dogma, but who should live here? And we kind of opened the place up and frankly, it's actually done extremely well since we opened it up. Simply because I think it was somebody just describe this as little mutinies going off in the heads of individuals. When you allow little mutinies go off people's heads, people do fantastic things. But the book is actually, you set up this course, but then it's a, it's a call to arms. I'll get there in a second. But you've a, you've a big middle section, which is what went wrong. So we have this system, which is working very well. It's extending around the globe. People are getting wealthier. People are be, becoming more democratic. Citizens have a voice. In the last 20 odd years, something has atrophied. What is that? I should add, before we go to that, just a second, that this was spreading worldwide. I don't want to go into the history of the post-war order and all the rest of it, but particularly as the Soviet Union started to crumble and the, it became pretty obvious that system had failed, um, democratic systems spread across much of the as you recently, as you just said, decolonized emerging and developing world, not everywhere by any means. China is a pretty obvious exception, but the it did spread and uh, we reached sort of peak democracy somewhere in the first decade of this century in terms of the proportion of regimes in the world that were democratic. So my argument is that this was a great success. It achieved uh, immense increases in prosperity, particularly in emerging developing countries. And capitalism with Chinese characteristics was an example. And that's obviously a big challenge for Democrats, which is part of my book. But in the home countries of democracy, uh, so Western Europe, Britain, particularly America above all, this didn't work out so well. And in my analysis, there are essentially three long-term things going on. First, the economic changes are from the 1970s to today no longer favored the middle and lower parts of our society. These were structural economic forces, the forces that had brought relatively unskilled I mean, non-university graduates, people, prosperity and stability, working in large factories, uh, in industry, uh, almost half the labor force in Britain at the time of 1950 was basically the industrial labor force. They were a dominant part of society. We de-industrialized. 
we deindustrialized largely because productivity growth in manufacturing was so high. And part of it was trade. But even in countries which had huge trade surpluses, like Germany, the proportion of people working in industry collapsed very, very rapidly. So that basically they were replaced by robots, machines, whatever. That was a huge change. The second big change, of course, was new competitors who had learned how to do what we could do. The history of the last 200 years has been know-how seeps out one way or the other, and it seeped out very fast, so we no longer have an industrial monopoly. And I don't think it was ever possible for a 12% of the world's population to keep all the, uh, the know-how. And then third, we liberalized our economy and finance in ways that allowed and that was something that's only become clear to me in the last 15 or so years, allowed the financial sector linking up with corporate management to shift quite a lot of income upwards into the financial sector to chief executives, I mean, to an extraordinary degree, creating a a new plutocracy. Uh, That was reinforced by genuine innovation, which created the new, uh, particularly in the technology sector, new monopoly giants and new staggering wealth. So these things together created a profound transformation of our society. And one of the ways we masked the social effects of all this was by encouraging a huge credit boom. This is an argument formed by a very distinguished Chicago school economist, Raghuram Rajan, who was also governor of the Reserve Bank of India. And it's a very good argument. And that, the power of the financial sector, along with the credit boom that it oversaw, finally led to this colossal financial crisis in 2008-10, which then, of course, went all over Europe, and you and Ireland know all about that. And you don't have to go over that one. We, we, we played our part. And it destabilised societies very, very profoundly. So along with, after a long period in which inequality had been rising, People in the middle to bottom of our societies were doing much less well than those at the top because they were not part of the technology revolution or the financial revolution. The regions of our economies, not so important for you, actually quite important for Northern Ireland, where industry had been very important, sank into serious decay. All our poor regions in Britain our former industrial areas, the areas that grew rich in the 19th century. These fell into rapid decay as deindustrialization proceeded, while areas like London, which were really on top of the new economy, did very well, creating huge regional inequality. And then there was the financial crisis that came along, which basically showed to people, not only were they not doing terribly well and being very unhappy about it, but the people in charge were incompetent crooks. That's how they saw it. And... Doesn't help. And then they sort of said traditional conservatism, the sort of conservatism embodied by traditional Republicans or traditional conservatives and even traditional social Democrats were sort of discredited. And people started looking for populists, for outsiders, people who weren't part of the respectable establishment class. On the left, we had Jeremy Corbyn, but it was the right that did best because they put forward a combination of anti-elitism with nationalism, often, alas, a tinge of racism. And the idea was put forward by people like Trump or Johnson in a completely different way. I'm not comparing them. Well, forget all those elite people. Forget all the experts. Put your trust in me. I have this transformative thing that will make your lives better. That's classic populism. It's what happens when people lose confidence and trust in established systems. They attack institutions, some of them core institutions of democracy, and we're in trouble. Well, it's very interesting, this sort of journey. As somebody who likes thinking about the world, it's fascinating globally. I'm going to be very, very narcissistic and say, I think Ireland is about eight or nine years behind this trend simply because... People got wealthy here in the 90s and the early noughties. And that's unusual for Western Europe. So rather than have a middle class that was going backwards, we had a middle class that was being propelled forwards by largely American capital and a variety of other sort of what I call soft notions, what we're talking about here. Openness, tolerance, education, all that good stuff. So I think we're actually 
about to possibly go into the cycle in Ireland. But we've seen how it plays out, right? We've seen how it plays out. We see it on on the streets here. There's anti-immigrant discussions. There's nationalism, stuff that we'd actually put to bed in the late 90s. We'd actually put nationalism in that box and said, look, let's not go back there. Let it let it lie. Now it's re-emerging. What is an Irish person? What isn't an Irish person? Etc. And I can sense, I can sense that it's it it is being dismissed by the establishment as very very extreme and it won't catch on. But it's there. It's there and it's coming. Now in the book you go back to almost back to ancient Greek and you Greek you say this is all happening. This is where things go wrong. How do we? fix this? How do we write this? And it's an appeal for citizenship towards the end, and I want to get there. But first, what do you see right now as the major threats? Set the scene for now before we go on to sort of talking about citizenship and uh, the historical link between the citizen, responsibility, and the society. Well, there's so much to discuss here. <laughs> but so domestically, we moved, as you say, into this troubled era of populist nationalism, which is very much still there, though fortunately we were lucky that the major figures in this so far, Trump and in much lesser degree, in different degree, Johnson, were pretty incompetent. And so egregiously so that they lost a lot of credibility and their opposition to them has mobilized to some degree. So more orthodox and apparently more sensible and reasonable people are currently in charge, but they are waiting in the wings. For, these forces are waiting in the wings, and in both American and British politics, very much. You can see it. I would add, too, I mean, I've recently been talking with a lot of French people, and they all think that the overwhelming likelihood is that Marine Le Pen will be the next president of France. Well, I mean, she's not just a, a populist. I've heard her, and though she herself largely disowns it, she comes from a neo-fascist route. And the reason I'm emphasizing this, she's always been pro-Putin, right? Yep. And there are very important figures on the Italian right, not, it appears at the moment, their prime minister, even though she comes definitely from a neo-fascist route, who are also pro-Putin. And they like the social conservatism, they like the nationalism, they admire the strong man. That's part of this politics. And this gets back to, you talked about the classical roots. Well, I have a discussion of what Plato says in his Republic, and he basically says when people, ordinary people, feel despised by the elite, feel insecure and uncomfortable in their existence, they look for a protector, and uh, he describes this protector, and it's unbelievably close to some of these figures. I, I, you will remember this. So uh, that's the internal danger. I really don't think it's gone. Um, obviously, in a society like Germany, with its overwhelming historical memory, the appeal of such figures is incredibly weak. And Germany is yeah. also a stable economy, and the least likely uh, to fall for that. Japan for not similar reasons too. But elsewhere in in Europe, you could see things happening. I mean, just look what happened in Sweden recently. The the Sweden of all countries, with about a quarter of the vote going to, well, essentially neo-fascist. So this is there. Meanwhile, we have competitors, different systems, what I call autocratic capitalism and bureaucratic autocratic capitalism. So look at Russia. Um Russia has been turned into deinstitutionalized dictatorship under Putin. His appeal is to, to the restoration of the old Russian empire, Russian grandeur and glory, if you like. It's, you call it make uh, Russia great again, right? Absolutely. But that's that's really it's a similar appeal. I mean, Trump's appeal is very clear. What it's about is just rather American in the style, and of course he's. God knows, not a very serious political organizer, thank heavens. He's a TV show person. But the appeal is the same. So what Putin has said to the Russian people is, and he's, they've mobilized the, the people behind this through propaganda and elsewhere, is we've been humiliated by the West. We have been weakened by the, the loss of our former empire. And we must restore it and become safe and powerful and great again. And he has no economic policy ideas. He's failed completely. So we are facing, I think, 
I've argued before, the most dangerous man in history, because in addition to having these revanchist views of the world, he has 5,000 nuclear warheads. And who knows how that plays out? So that's one danger. And by the way, people like this. Let's be clear. I mean, people like Erdogan, in different ways, Modi, they playing the similar tunes in different ways, yeah. to different yeah, degrees. Yeah, similar different tunes. Problems. There's an awful lot of it. Bolsonaro temporarily went, but he's also in the same line. There's a lot of it about. So that's the autocratic system. And there's a danger there because we might succumb to that. I don't say we will, but these are terrible regimes and they create terrible chaos normally. Then the other one, of course, is something else. It's it's communism done the Chinese way, which has married the market economy in some ways with the bureaucratic system. I think they think of themselves a little bit as a very, very large Singapore with a much more bureaucratic system, of course. And it has to be said up to now, over the last 40 years, this has been the most successful economy in the world. It has turned an unbelievably poor and backward economy into uh, one of the two biggest economies in the world, technologically really quite advanced, a rising military power, and yet a country we have to cooperate with. So democracy is troubled internally for the reasons I've been discussing in brief, but it's also challenged by some very, very powerful rivals. Now, we are not going to turn ourselves into the Chinese system. That's completely inconceivable, nor do they believe anyone could really, perhaps Vietnam, because they're unique. But there is a danger that politicians who think a bit like Putin, whose view of the world is a bit like Putin, will become more successful in our countries, and that will be also very, very dangerous. So we operate with a democratic order which is no longer either domestically or internationally as decisively triumphant as we used to think just 30 years ago. So from from my reading of the book and also my reading of you over the years and us chit-chatting and, and talking, what's very interesting about history is when you, when you talk to people who live through history, they were really kind of unaware. You know, they're like, oh yeah, we were kind of vaguely aware of this. And then seen with the perspective of decades uh, and the perspective of a little bit of time, you realize, oh my God, that was a moment, you know, Mussolini's march in Rome, the beer Keller Putsch in Munich, you know, these moments that we now are all aware of. But if you ask Germans hanging around Munich in 1923, they say, oh, there's some little guy with a moustache and some bizarre sort of a couple of free corps uh, soldiers, but we're not worried about them. So we never see the moment when we're living in it, simply because life is going on around us. Is your sense that this 2020s is, is one of those types of hinge moments? periods that we, if we're not serious about it, if we don't discuss it, if we don't analyze it, we could get overwhelmed? Well, I think I, I if I remember correctly, one of the chapters is called uh, Hinge of History. But the it's terribly difficult to judge these things. And of course, I pray to God, as it were, that in retrospect, people pick up this book and say, well, he was hysterical, wasn't he? And that's <laughs> That's, yeah, well, that's a, that's a that's job well one, done then. That's a job well done. That's what one wants to be because I, of course, am trying to give a, an analysis and a bit of a prophecy in the hope that it will all prove to be false, perhaps a to a tiny degree because of what I write. Otherwise, one wouldn't write. But we have these huge internal challenges of making our society stably and successfully and proudly and truly democratic again in the best sense. We have to regain our ability to generate widely shared prosperity. I believe that's a necessary condition for stability in democracy. The Irish example you give is such a wonderful indicator of that. Then we, of course, have increasingly to deal with powerful rival systems. We, for the first time for hundreds of years, appear competitor for the West, which isn't Western. It isn't Western historically and in the deep history of China, and it is very much not Western in what we think of as contemporary Western society, post-colonial, democratic, liberal societies. So China is something completely different. So that's a second huge set of challenges. And then 
we have really significant global shared challenges, the most important of which is the global environment, as important, obviously, is the preservation of peace between these different systems. And I remain, because that's where I started, a believer that we need to manage and promote development worldwide. And indeed, there are many problems we won't be able to resolve if we don't. And we can't do this last set of things without cooperating with China. So we have these, as it were, triple challenge, internal, international rivalry, superpower, which is also ideological rivalry. And then we have shared global challenges. And I think that if you look at the climate problem, you look at some of the other problems, you look at the the war we now have and the possibilities of war between the US and China, they're not zero, they're very far from zero. Just look at what's going on over Taiwan and its strategic importance. You look at our complete failure really to do anything about the climate danger because it's a global challenge and we keep worrying about, well, are we getting green in Europe? Well, getting green in Europe is gonna make absolutely no difference to the outcome, shifted a couple of years. It's, this is all navel-gazing. So I've tried to lay out towards the end that we've got to fix ourselves and we've got to, at the same time, do it in a world in which we succeed in cooperating. These are challenges humanity has never faced before. Never before have we had the capacity, well, since the middle of the 20th century, we've had the capacity to kill ourselves off, or most of us, and now we have the capacity to ruin the planet. So... These are incredible challenges and we don't look up to it. And just before we go, what you what you conclude is you go back to maybe Greek ideas, platonic ideas, the idea of the responsible, active citizen, which is something it's very interesting. I've always I always thought when you're when you're brought up in a republic, the mood music is quite different. What you're told in school, what you're told as a kid, etc., that the citizen is important. Whereas you're brought up in other sort of societies that that that's aspirational. And I think in, in, in a small society like Ireland, it's kind of aspirational. At least, at least it's, it's, it's there constantly that we are citizens of this republic, we are equal, etc. even though in, in actuality we're very, very divided. But what you do is you, you call, it's a call to arms actually for the, the engaged active citizen at the end. Yes, I make two points about citizenship, both of which I think are rather controversial and difficult. The first is we have to accept that citizenship is exclusive. That is to say, citizenship ties certain people to a certain state and a certain jurisdiction. The rights of citizens are not universal rights. People, there are universal rights, but the rights of citizens are not universal rights. And that means societies have a right to determine who lives there. And part of that is, and who is a citizen, and part of that links to my second point, that citizenship should not be viewed as just a set of rights. It's both rights and obligations. And one of the things I think we've lost, particularly in the bigger countries, is this sense that we are actually, not just rhetorically, but actually dependent on one another and mutually responsible. Otherwise, we won't have a civilized democracy. And that means when the economy is naturally tending for various reasons to create greater inequality, greater inequality of opportunity, greater regional inequality, the state must become more active and more determined to offset this. And the big mistake we made, the biggest mistake, I think, in the US and UK during the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s was that we just let it happen and didn't take the sort of action that would have been taken in, say, a Denmark to offset this. And that has left lots of people feeling bereft. So we must view a citizenship as having a set of obligations to one another. And that's an important part of what I'm recommending. And in the process, by the way, I'm also recommending changes in our politics. And one of the things that's influenced me in, in this is I talk about citizens' juries, which you have used in Ireland very, very successfully. I even discussed the possibility of having a House of Parliament which is selected by lot. But I think we need to bring ordinary people and the voices of ordinary people into politics. That was the great Greek achievement when it worked, of course, 
leaving aside slaves and women, all obvious. But the other problem we have is that politics has been handed over to narrow, self-satisfied, inward-looking elites on both left and right and in the establishment. And they don't really they rather despise most ordinary people. They despise their values. They don't want to talk to them. They don't want to persuade them. And then it's no surprise you get anti-vaxxer nonsense. You get really destructive forms of anti-immigrant attitudes, which led to our departure from the EU. And we've got to learn from this. If we don't create an inclusive sense of citizenship, democracy just cannot function. It ultimately a democracy depends on, and has always depended, this is central to Greek thinking, on the idea of citizenship. Yeah, your your, your demos, you know, the, the whole lot of us yeah, together. The but, demos, exactly. The and our demos is, and this is better than theirs, is every adult. Yeah. Not a subset. And so we have in principle, and I just to end with this, I would like to remind people that we live in the most prosperous, freest, most stable, and and actually, strangely, when you look at the figures, happiest societies in human history. These are our complex, fragile system is a tremendous success, should be spread worldwide, and we should treasure and defend it. Martin Wolf, on that note, the book is The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Those of you who are interested, listeners, and I know I speak I speak for, for most sisters in the world and our place in it. This is a wonderful, wonderful read. Wonderful, wonderful read. And it's also an appeal both to head and heart, which I think makes it a, a fascinating work. Martin, thank you so much for your time and we will talk to you very soon. I hope so. It's been an immense pleasure to talk to you again, David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That was an incredibly concise run-through history and economic history. Economic history in the last 200 years in half an hour. Unbelievable. He also talks about kind of hinges, turning points in history. Yes. Which is really interesting. And as he was saying that, I was kind of thinking, Christ, we're living through this really tumultuous time in, yeah. in history. And it is that kind of thing, as you were saying, it's like not being able to see the wood from the trees. Yeah, exactly. When you're, when you're in there living it. But I wonder what your... My take on it is, well, the interesting, you know the, the great Chinese proverb, which is a warning, it's not a problem, it's a warning. Yeah. May you live in interesting yes, times, yes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really want to live in interesting times because interesting times are dangerous times. They are consequential times. And, you know, you go back to that Lenin quote that I, I often give, you know, that Lenin said about looking at history. He yeah. said there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks yeah. when decades happen. So things come together, this kind of perfect storm idea. Or there's that other great quote from that movie, which is history. It's just one bloody thing. They after another. 
<laughs> I just, <laughs> I remember when, when Lucy was young, she was doing history in school. And she says, Dad, what's this history stuff all about? I said, what? She's just like dead lads. <laughs> <laughs> dead she's people. Not, she's not wrong. <laughs> she's not wrong. But fascinatingly, it is almost impossible to see what's going on when you're living through it. Yeah. And I always think that, you know, if you look back 100 years to 1922, 1923, you can see now with the benefit of hindsight that these were absolutely critical years. Mm. And yet when people are living through it, they didn't see that, right? Even Irish independence, people had no real idea when they were living through it, how momentous this is, what it's going to lead to, because you never really know what it's going to lead to. So it strikes me that when I look at, for example, the war in Ukraine, I think this is the end point of a 30-year history that began with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm. And the fall of the Berlin Wall is a moment where the world shifts on its axis completely. One ideology, which was really dominant, we forget how dominant it was, communism, was kind of laid bare as like, well, we're not really into this. People get free. China begins to open up. Soviet Union disappears. European Union goes and accelerates the euro we got all these things happening at the same time. And then we have a kind of a 30-year period, what they call an economic super cycles. So yeah. economics is like this five or six-year cycle of the economy. And then there's these big super cycles, ideological ones, and ideological ones. And I think that the pandemic sort of marked what they call it in literature, book endings of this three-decade period. Yeah. And then thereafter, we now have what Martin Wolf is talking about, a series of events which show that all great epochs have, it seems to me, at the root, the seeds of their own destruction. And the great liberal epoch, the one that I believe, okay, mm. probably the, the most problematic issue was inequality. So that yeah. Martin Wolf was talking about there, we kind of took our eye off the ball, we thought the economies were going well, but inequality those people who owned assets did very well. Those people who worked for a living didn't do so well. And what you find then is the inequality creates insiders and outsiders. The outsiders vote for the nationalists, populists, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Kind of a legitimate vote, in fairness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Completely and understandable. Completely understandable. And, and then, of course, we go into a, a different phase. In fact, it's the sort of the Neil Howe fourth turning approach that basically mm. every generation experiences. So what I find fascinating about that approach by the way, it's a great book called The Fourth Turning, if you're interested in this sort of approach to economic history. Mm. In actual fact, Neil Howe actually texted me last night. He's got a new book out, and we're going to have him on the podcast. But his, his, idea, his idea is that every generation experiences history differently. Yeah. So if you're 18, you have a certain attitude to what's going on now. If you're 28, if you're 38, if you're 48, 60, 70, you have a different view. So, But my sense is very close to Martin Wolf's that this is a hinge period because we have now... A, the Ukraine a, war or just... The, the Ukraine war, the whole thing, the combination of populism in the West, yeah, the rise and rise and rise of China with its sort of bureaucratic attitude to everything. So it's not democratic. There's no way of the people expressing themselves. And yet it's economically very, very vibrant. Yeah. You have the Russian model, yeah, which is just an autocratic dictator. So you've got a bureaucratic autocracy which is China, but you have a dictatorship and an autocracy, which is Russia. And the liberal, the the one thing I would say, the one hopeful thing is that we've been here before. And if you look at the Second World War and all those issues, liberal democracy won in the end. Yeah, It was faced by fascism, by communism, all these isms. And at the very core of these isms, I think, is a weakness for destroying the individual for saying, we know better. And then I think that destroys a huge amount of the joy of life, actually, the creativity of life, all that sort of stuff. But I think we're living through something quite scary at the moment. And I think people will look back at the 2020s and think, is this the 1920s all over again, where big ideas come up, big technological changes come up, and you end up in somewhere quite nasty. And I I, I think if we don't take seriously what Martin Wolf and people like that are talking about, I think it was nice the way he said at the end, he said, I hope I'm wrong. So yes. I hope people think yeah, I'm yeah. hysterical. Yeah. But if we don't take seriously, I think we're on a we're on a very dangerous path. 
Mark, there's a buzz about the place at the moment. Well, there, there is a buzz in the house. It's cackling. It's cackling. Lucy, Lucy has a gig in the Workman's Club on the 23rd of March. Tickets at Ticketmaster and all that good stuff. So, yeah. That's her first solo gig. Absolutely. So, it's the Workman's Club, 23rd of March. Actually, let's play out with the track. Absolutely. Here we go. You're never here when I'm with you But I'll be here if you want me and just like smoke, I don't know where you go I'm trying to know the part of you That you don't know yourself Maybe you're scared if I see inside I'll go and look for someone else Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.